Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll finish up this chapter this morning, looking at verses 16 or 17 through 18, just those last two verses. Uh, but finishing up really the second part of the sermon we began last week from this whole section, verses 14 through 18. We hear of our merciful and faithful high priest. I'm sure you've heard this quote from George Bernard Shaw, those who can do, those who can't teach. And I've noticed that many times business teachers have experienced one or two failed business endeavors. Uh, Marriage and family therapists come from broken or troubled marriages themselves. Church planting coaches tend to be men whose own church plant failed. Um, now that's just something that, you know, anecdotally you might see, but it's actually a fallacy. Why would anyone want to, to learn from those who have not tasted the glory of success? Well, we tend to, we tend to do that. We tend to want to find people who, who've struggled and who might be able to warn us of the, the challenges, but But that creates a bit of a a dilemma for us in understanding our relationship with our Savior. Because how could our Savior live a life characterized by suffering? How how could we look up to him as one who spent his entire life in failure from a worldly perspective? Doesn't that prove that he's incapable of achieving success or even giving us good counsel in this life? Is Jesus just another cautionary tale, someone who disciples those, uh, disciples others because he couldn't cut it as a carpenter? What we'll find in these verses is that Jesus suffered, that, and, he, and his suffering had a purpose, all of it. Jesus accomplished that purpose perfectly, so our main idea is that Jesus fully represents and personally sympathizes with sinful humans through his active and passive obedience. So let's ask the Lord for his help before we read it. Heavenly Father, we do look to you for insight and understanding as we open your word. Lord, we come expecting to hear from you. This is your word, and we, your people, Lord, we want to have hearts that are softened to listen and respond appropriately. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Lord, help us to be engaged in your word, to to listen attentively. Lord, to see how it would make sense in our lives, how you might apply it directly to us and, and do so uniquely. Lord, each one of us comes with different burdens and cares. We do ask that you would help us to set those aside and to focus on your word now, to honor you with our attention. And Lord, may you give us insight that would help us in our worship of you and in our application of this truth um, in our lives. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. 
Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 2. We'll look at verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we looked at this last week, this first point, verses 14 through 16, considering how Jesus has delivered us from the wages of sin. We talked about how Jesus died in order to deliver us from the enslaving fear of death by destroying the one who had the power of death. Jesus destroyed the devil by his own death on the cross. Um, but that's only part of the problem because right, that, that, that allows us to, to have the, the penalty satisfied. But how do we experience reconciliation? I mean, that, that allows us to, to, to understand that like the, the, the wages of sin, that Christ has, has taken our place upon the cross in his death, but, but we still have a problem of, of needing to, to move forward and, and to be in a reconciling relationship with a holy God. What, is, what does that entail? How can we experience that? And so we'll see here that we're delivered from the penalty of sin. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus became like us in in every respect in his incarnation. The addition of humanity doesn't take away from the son's deity, but in Jesus's humanity, he was subject to the same limitations that we experience He took upon himself all of the physical infirmities of the flesh associated with the human body. In in his flesh and blood, as we read in verse 14, in flesh and blood, he shares, he partakes of that. He partook of the same things. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus was limited to time and space. He wasn't omnipresent. Jesus was limited in his knowledge. He grew in wisdom, according to Luke 2.52. Jesus was subject to physical and emotional pain. It was necessary for Jesus to be like us, to be fully human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest, they represented their people to God, before God. They administered the, the sacrificial system on their behalf as one of them themselves, so that even before they would offer a sacrifice for someone else, they would have to offer one for themselves on their own behalf, right? Their own sin. And this will become a theme later on when we get to section uh, chapter 4, verse 14 through 510. But the author's point in this verse is to show how Jesus fully represents humanity, that he is a perfect representation of humanity. He becomes like his brothers, so that he might suffer for them. 
Philip Hughes comments, the Son could not have represented men before God, offering as their high priest the sacrifice of himself on their behalf and in their place, had he not first become their fellow man. Representation requires identification. He first had to identify himself with his brothers in every way in order then to represent them before God as a merciful and faithful high priest. That's why he came. The fact that Jesus was subject to physical and emotional pain is where this author wants to, to focus. Right? He, the author of Hebrews is emphasizing that physical and emotional pain here. He's already pointed to Jesus' death in verse 14. Right? This is his passive obedience, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, through his own death. When we say passive obedience, we're, we're using that language to refer to his death. It's his, his passion. The passion of Christ is a reference to his suffering on the cross in our place. And he's about to point to the temptation that he suffered at the end of this section, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. That's a, a different kind of suffering. You have the, the passion, which is his, his suffering on the cross, but then you also have his suffering under temptation throughout his life. You have the clear example of him suffering temptation in the wilderness when the devil tempts him um, after fasting. Right? But, then, but, but here you see that it's really beginning from his humiliation and his incarnation all the way up to the cross. He suffered temptation. And so that's his active obedience. You have his active and passive obedience, both contributing to what was necessary in order to represent us before God. It wasn't that he only had to die, but he had to be perfectly obedient throughout his life. So what does this mean here? This is a big word, propitiation. And you're thinking, oh, this is going to get technical, and I don't want to get technical. You know, in the previous verse, we had sanctification referenced, and we had to talk about sanctification. And this, these are, are big words, but we have to deal with them. We have to understand what is meant by them, by, by considering the way in which this word is used throughout Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, and the way, the way we've thought about it historically, and it's been used even by, by contemporary authors of, of the biblical writers. So how did Jesus make propitiation for sin? What does propitiation mean? There's really basically two, in, two primary interpretations today for this word. It's from the Greek, alaskamai. One is that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. But others have said this Greek word, alaskamai, does not imply anything about the wrath of God. It only has to do with the removal of penalty or expiation, right? So it's either, does this Greek word mean propitiation, or should we just translate it as expiation, the removal of sin? And maybe you're thinking, well, why can't both be true? I mean, aren't there, aren't there verses we can look to to say both? Well, I think everyone agrees that expiation, the removal of the penalty of sin, is needed and necessary and something that, that Christ does on the cross. The question is, how does he do that? How does he remove that guilt? How does he pay the penalty? And some do want to suppress the idea or eliminate even the idea that God is wrathful. 
Now, there's really no denying that in the Old Testament. They, they want to call into question the use of that language under the New Covenant and suggest that God is, is not wrathful. So, so the idea that he makes propitiation for them, does he satisfy the wrath of God? And that, for example, in, in Luke 18, 13, you see the tax collector crying out. Same word is used there, the same root word. He's crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the translation is, be merciful to me. It's the same verb. Is the tax collector asking for his sin to be taken away? Or is he asking for God to turn away his wrath? Right? That's, that's the question. So let's examine some of the biblical evidence. And you don't have to jump around with me, but follow along with the argument here. It's, I want to begin from the Old Testament. Uh, when Jacob sent a gift to his brother Esau, he believed that the gift would, would appease his brother's anger. Right? His brother was upset with him. They hadn't seen each other for a long time. They knew they were going to meet on their journeys. And he's, he sends a gift of, of animals to him, ahead of him, to, to try to appease that anger. That was his goal, and it's the same word, in the, at least in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's also using this same root word. Alaskamai is found 49 times in the Septuagint version of Leviticus. So the word is, is commonly used in reference to making atonement. It's, it's used to, of, of the sacrificial system. And so, so this is the idea, at least in Genesis, is that Jacob is trying to appease his brother's anger. And in Leviticus, what are they trying to do? They're making atonement, which is doing the same thing. It's appeasing the anger and wrath of God. Now, after Moses witnessed the Israelites worshiping the golden calf, we read this in Exodus 32, 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Again, same word. Perhaps I can appease God's anger on your behalf. Moses sought to appease God's wrath by offering himself to be blotted out of God's book. He says, blot my forgive them or blot my name out of this book. But God rejects the offer and sends a plague upon the people. When God brought judgment upon Korah and then those who joined Korah, Dathan and Abiram, and they had 250 uh, leaders within the community that all gathered with them and stood opposed to the authority of Moses and Aaron. And they, they, they challenged their authority. Who sent you, right? Who, who made you king over us? Who made you the ruler? They're challenging him. And, and, and so God says, everyone get away from them. And he opens up the ground and swallows them up. And, and then these other men who, who are who are concerned and fearful and trying to run, he sends fire upon them so that everyone who was in rebellion against Moses and Aaron ends up getting devoured in that, that day. The very next day, the people who survived that are then grumbling against Moses and Aaron for allowing such a thing to take place. So God is about to consume them. But Moses tells Aaron, make atonement for the people. Take your censer, bring it to the people Offer this censer to God, basically, this, this incense offering to God. 
and therefore you would make atonement. You would appease his anger against them. And so Aaron's actions did appease God's wrath, and it brings an end to this plague judgment. You have another plague happening shortly after. So this happens in Numbers 16 and Numbers 25. A plague is ravaging the people of Israel. And Phinehas, it says, brought an end to that plague by driving a a spear through two people at once. It was a man that was openly sleeping with a Midianite woman. Open rebellion against God and his will. And we read this in Numbers 25, 11. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. He's turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Now, the same word's not used there, but I, I'm just showing you that this concept is, you can't deny that it's a biblical concept. That if we're going to be reconciled to God, his wrath must be turned away. It must be satisfied. So we could point to several other Old Testament passages, but we'll stop there. This clearly, this idea, this concept influences the New Testament authors. So Paul ends up speaking of God appointing Jesus as the propitiation by his blood in Romans 3.25. And the the point of Jesus' atonement was to justify God's righteousness. So this leads us to understand in history what theologically has been called the satisfaction theory of the atonement. And there's other theories uh, that are either parallel or or complementary, but this is the, the primary one. Augustine spoke of men as lying under the wrath of God due not only to original sin that they inherited from Adam, but also the abundance of their own actual sins. They stand in need of a mediator who will reconcile them by removing the wrath of God that hangs over them. This is Augustine's um, argument. Now, later in the the 11th century, Anselm is the first to make a fully developed case for this satisfaction theory of the atonement. And he was influenced by teaching of the early church fathers, uh, namely Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, and John of Damascus. But in his uh, book, Cure Deus Homo, which means why God became man, Anselm argued that sin must always receive punishment or satisfaction. That's that has to take place. It's a necessity. Sin will either be punished or it will receive satisfaction. Sin against an infinitely great God results in infinite guilt. Thus only a sacrifice of infinite value could satisfy the demands of God's justice. So the the perpetrator, the sinner, either has to be himself punished for his sin or the penalty, the punishment, has to be satisfied in some way. Sin cannot just be ignored because God is a just God. He's righteous and holy. So Anselm says that the on, only the sacrifice of infinite value could satisfy the demands of God's justice. And at the same time, he says that this offering needed to be made by a man in order to appease God's wrath toward man's sin. And this is why we emphasize the idea that he has to be our representative. 
The only possible means for salvation was the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So Herman Bavink acknowledges this about Anselm. He says, Anselm was the first to understand and to understand most clearly. Maybe that's an overstatement, the first to understand, but to understand most clearly that the redemption accomplished by Christ was a deliverance. Not primarily from the consequences of sin, from death and Satan's power, but above all, from sin itself and sin's guilt. So it's not just deliverance from the consequences of sin, but it's deliverance from sin and its guilt upon us. A few centuries later, Aquinas extends the doctrine. There's there's differences between Aquinas and, and Anselm, but he extends the doctrine further, suggesting that all of Christ's suffering and his obedience contributed to the satisfaction of God's wrath, not just his death, but his life, as we've been emphasizing, his perfect or total active and passive obedience was necessary to appease the wrath of God against sin. And then finally, during the the 20th century, this is the last part of our little trip through history on the atonement. In the 20th century, you have C.H. Dodd, who attempted to reinterpret propitiation as merely meaning expiation. And this is a, a time when the idea of the of God being wrathful was just repugnant, as it still is right, today to an to a unbelieving world. And so there's this, I, this desire to really reinterpret the definitions of the word. And so he argued, Dodd argued, that the idea of God's wrath is an archaic phrase that was only suited to defend a thoroughly archaic idea. That's chronological snobbery at its finest. And looking back on history and saying, we're, we're more sophisticated than they were back then. We can understand these things differently. So instead of appeasing God's wrath, Dodd argued that Alaska Mai only had to do with the removal of man's guilt. And he actually very frankly just says it's a unique use. When you look in the way it's used in, in, in the broader Greek culture, it, 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 it does imply other, you know, it does imply wrath, but here, or, or appeasing the wrath or the anger of the person that you've sinned against, you know, so if you're, if you've sinned against your neighbor, they're mad at you, and, and by making atonement or by making propitiation, you're, you're appeasing that anger. Well, that was true when, when you were outside of scripture, but in scripture, it's unique. Here, it doesn't imply any of that. He wanted to just say it only implies the removal of man's guilt, as if that just magically happens because God decides to do it. As we've seen, the word certainly goes further than that in Scripture. It implies the turning away of God's wrath. So I like what John Piper writes about the word. He says this, the substitute, Jesus Christ, doesn't just cancel the wrath. He absorbs it and diverts it from us to himself. God's wrath is just, and it was spent, not withdrawn. He didn't just remove his wrath. He spent it. Instead of on us as we deserve, he spent it upon his son. So not only are we delivered from the penalty of sin, but we're also, according to verse 18, delivered from the power of sin. So the next point in your outline. 
delivered from the wages of sin, delivered from the penalty of sin, and delivered from the power of sin. Here he's focused specifically on temptation, right? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This doesn't mean that sin no longer has any grip upon our hearts. Sin does overpower believers daily. But this verse assures us that Christ is upholding us. He's granting us a way of escape, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And just as the author of Hebrews has said that we are no longer enslaved to the fear of death, he agrees with Paul that we're no longer enslaved to sin. And Paul says this in Romans 6, verse 6. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Jesus is able to come to the aid of those who are in the midst of temptation because he knows what it's like to suffer those same temptations. He'll say this very clearly in in chapter 4, verse 15 as well. Right There, he, he acknowledges that the only difference there is that Jesus never caved into the temptation. He, he was made like us in every way. He was tempted like us in every way. But he never gave in to that temptation. Jesus suffered temptation to its fullest extent so that he might support us in our own temptation. I've mentioned in a previous sermon in this series about how C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he spoke about this idea of, of Christ suffering temptation to the fullest extent because he never gave in to it. There's this notion that people have that if, if he didn't really sin, how can, he, how can he understand what I'm going through? Right? I mean, he was perfect. And you maybe hear that when, when people say, well, you know, um, pray, ask the Lord for, for, for help and understand. Well, he was perfect. He couldn't, he couldn't understand the level of temptation I'm experiencing right now. It's foolish. B.F. Westcott said something um, similar to Lewis 50 years before Lewis. Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. Only the sinless could possibly understand the fullest extent of temptation. All of us have a breaking point. We all suffer, we all fall short, right, of that fullest extent. He says, he who falls yields before the last strain. Whereas Christ endures to the very end, persevering through every trial and temptation. Jesus' sinlessness doesn't make him inadequate to support us. He was made like us in every respect, tempted like us in every respect. The same phrase there that we find here in verse um, 18 is, is also uh, that he was, or sorry, not 18. What does it say? In every respect, he was made like us. You have, uh, verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like us or like his brothers in every respect. And then in verse, chapter 4, verse 15, 
It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So he knows the depths of temptation unlike anyone else. He's been tempted beyond our own breaking points because we all know the relief of giving in. The ability for Jesus to understand how much temptation we're under is, in fact, unparalleled in humanity. You could look to no one else who would understand better what you're suffering. It's the difference between the dieter who never cheats and the one who cheats daily. Who are you going to go to for advice? Right? The, the failed dieter is not going to be much help. He hasn't proven himself to be worthy of your trust and misery may love company, but if we want to snap out of misery, we need to surround ourselves with those who are not miserable. And so our only true help, our only true aid and comfort and support can come from the only one who is truly sinless. The only one who suffered in every way that we suffer, but never sinned. Jesus understood what it was like to suffer temptation, but he never caved under the pressure, and that's precisely why he's the perfect person to come to our aid. And John Brown provides an illustration as well from a different angle on this idea of that's the exact type of, temp of sympathy that we need. Christ is able to offer us his sympathy because he has suffered as we are suffering. And he gives this illustration. John Brown says, suppose two friends equally benevolent in their temper, equally attached to you, the one, a person who's never suffered under the afflictions to which you are exposed, the other one who had experienced the same or at least very sim uh, a very similar course of trials. Would there not be a tenderness and a suitableness and a, min a minuteness of appropriate attentions and consolations experienced from the latter which in the very nature of things, it's impossible that the former, however kindly disposed, should yield. And then he compares it. He says, who is not struck with the astonishment and delight at observing in the plan of salvation such an intimate knowledge of all the peculiarities of our nature? And such a benevolent use made of this intimate knowledge in securing for man, not for man, not only the great substantial blessings of salvation, but their being conferred on him in the way best fitted to soothe and comfort. To soothe and comfort him amid the remaining evils of the present state. He doesn't only represent us on that judgment day before his father. And he's with us now supporting us through our present day trials. He sympathizes with us entirely. Not only does Jesus faithfully represent us before God in our humanity, but he's able to sympathize with us because he suffered in the same ways that we suffer. So I just want to conclude with this. Jesus is your only hope. We all need to understand that the suffering of Jesus was absolutely necessary for our salvation. God's wrath is not incompatible with his love. In fact, it's, it's why he sent his son, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins.
Now, we've just explained what propitiation means. It means turning away his wrath. So he's saying he loved us so much that he turned his wrath away by sending his son. So Joel Beakey summarizes it this way. When God was angry enough against us to send us to hell, he also loved us so much that he sent his son to bear that wrath for our salvation so that Christ would bear the weight and the penalty of our sin on the cross. That he would take the wrath of God in our place. Have you come to know Jesus as your merciful and faithful high priest? When you stand before God on the day of judgment, there are only two options. Either Jesus Christ will represent you before his Father, or you will stand before him on your own. Only Jesus was capable of turning away the wrath of God by bearing its full weight in his flesh as he died upon the cross. Only Jesus can come to your aid when you suffer temptations of any kind. And so your only hope is to turn to him in repentance and faith. Let's do so now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for once again this this simple gospel reminder it is, it is simple to understand, and, and yet it is not something we want to grow indifferent towards or, or to take lightly. And as we consider this, this heavier topic, this, this weighty topic of propitiation, Lord, we want to understand it rightly, that, that what Christ did and accomplished for us, the way in which he removed the penalty of our sin, removed the sting of death, was by bearing your wrath in our place, a wrath that that our sin deserved. Lord, may, may we respond to that with repentance and faith. May we respond to that with gratitude, recognizing what Christ has done with, with hearts filled with the joy of our salvation and a, and a longing to worship you in spirit and in truth, not just now and in the close of this service, but throughout our day, to rest in this truth, to be enamored by this truth, to be so excited and delighted in this that we would share it with our neighbor who doesn't understand. Lord, we want to magnify the gospel in our own experience and in, in our expression, the way we articulate that to others, Lord. So help us to, to deepen our understanding and to then use that new knowledge for your glory and to know that it gives us a greater sense of assurance to understand that Christ bore that, the full weight of that penalty in our place so that we can be called children of God and we can come to you as children to a father knowing that you love us that you receive us that you hear our prayers and then that you answer them according to your perfect will for your glory and for our good we ask it in Christ's name amen well I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, Christ, our hope in life and death. You'll find the lyrics in your handout.